Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. And I'm delighted, Ron, to be meeting you for this conversation. Um, I've read your book with joy and it's been wonderful to find so many revered and to me very dear authorities expanded with such lucidity and such learning. I consider your book a kind of trailblazer, um, and in that capacity of trailblazer, um, I've enjoyed your company for many years. Uh, as someone who dabbles in the study of Eastern Christianity, I found pretty systematically that whenever I've entered new territory, uh, you've been there first, uh, usually leaving a flag. My favorite occurrence was once when I was sitting in the library of the Oriental Institute in Rome calling up a book by Christos Yanaras, uh, to find that you'd written a learned article about it while it was still an unpublished thesis. Um, you do have an uncanny ability to pick up statements of significance and to say something intelligent about them before most other people even realize they've been made. And so as a way into this conversation, I'd like to ask and set off with two questions. Um, the first is an example of that brazen curiosity that the fathers despised. Um, but it has been on my mind for some time. And I do wonder, do you ever sleep or do you just read? Um, and the second question, uh, slightly more significant, uh, given the importance of the Eastern Christian inspiration in your own extraordinary theological oeuvre, um, what was it that first caused your turning towards the East from Welsh winter, uh, which I know from experience uh, can be quite austere. Thank you so much, Eric. And, and may I just say it, it's a real privilege to be able to share this, this time with you and to meet you virtually like this. Uh, your first question, the answer is simple. I, I do sleep um, and average hours. I'm not one of those people who gets by on four hours a night. but. I suppose I've always been in the habit, because of doing a lot of theology around other things, of just grabbing whatever moments are available mm. um, and reading reading when I can. So yes, I, I guess it's just that, that habit of making the most of the unforgiving moment, as the poet says. But um, yes, what first prompted this? Well, it's, it's a couple of things, really. One quite important factor when I was a teenager was an interest in, in Russia, in Russian art, um, Russian literature, Russian music. And I'm not quite sure where that came from, but it had something to do with Russian films as well. Mm -hmm. And that led me into a, a fascination with the hinterland of all these things in Russia, which is the Orthodox Church. And I began to read around that subject. As a student, I became more and more fascinated with this, and I remember coming across that great book by Vladimir Lossky, The Mystical mm -hmm. Theology of the Eastern Church, in I think my second year as a student in Cambridge, and writing an essay for my theology supervisions based on this. And I can still remember the total incomprehension which the essay met on the part of my, my then supervisor, who clearly didn't expect theology to be done like this. But I rather obstinately thought, well, why not? And maintained my interest in that area, wrote a doctoral thesis 
in the area. And I guess that part of the attraction of it all was the sense that the theological formulations I was looking at as a student were not simply intellectual patterns. They were distilled out of a form of life, a form of prayer, and above all, a form of common worship, liturgy. Mm -hmm. And that deep sense of continuity between the, the liturgical life, the life of personal prayer and the attempt to be aligned with the presence of God and the theological reflection that goes with it. The continuity was what struck me and still does. And I'm not saying it's not there in Western Christianity, but certainly for me as for many others, the interweaving of those things just seems to come rather more naturally to a lot of the Eastern Christian world. Yes, and, and, and you convey that wonderfully. In your first chapter, you talk a lot about seeing and about learning how to see in the school of Evagrius and some of the other authors of the Philokalia. Mm. And you talk about, or Evagrius talks about three ways of seeing. In his mm. treatise on discernment, um, he exemplifies what they stand for in, in saying, or talking about three ways of looking at gold. He says there's a human way of looking at gold, which is not concerned to know what it symbolizes, but simply brings before the mind the image of gold and makes you register that it's there. So that's the human way of seeing. Mm -hmm. He says there's a demonic way of seeing gold, which is concerned with the acquisition of physical gold and using it to exercise power over others and thinking about the wealth and glory that will come from this. And then the third way is the angelic way of looking at gold. The angelic thought, he says, is concerned with the true nature of things and with searching out their spiritual essences. Why was gold created and scattered like sand in the low regions of the earth? How, when found, is it washed in water and committed to the fire, fashioned into the candlesticks of the tabernacle and the senses? And he says, I think quite wonderfully, a man such as Cleopas brings a heart burning with these mysteries. So mm -hmm. seeing the way the angels do makes our heart burn. Mm. In your book, and in talking about these ways of seeing, you say, and it's a tremendous statement, that to perceive the world rightly is to recognize it as a system of mutual gift and of enlightenment. And you say that passion-free eros is the desire that the other be itself. And then that what needs to be overcome in human perception is the alliance of perception, whether bodily or mental, with self-interest. Now, these aren't spontaneous responses in the age of TikTok and the Instagram. How do we learn to see in this way? And what in that process of learning is the interrelationship between ascesis and perception with the mm. ethical, if you like, and the intellectual? I'd be fascinated to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I'm very glad indeed that you, you picked up that um, particular passage, which has been um, haunting me really for, for years and years and years since I first encountered it, because it me seemed too. to me to say something so <laughs> clearly, yeah. it seemed to me to be saying something so very fundamental about how we get our, our place in the world wrong. And I think within this, the, how should I put it? The purifying of our perception is an attempt to stand back from 
reducing the world to my terms, my agenda, as if the world out there was related to nothing but me. Mm -hmm. Now, when I really see something as it is, I see it as related not just to me, but to its own environment as part of a, an ecology, as you might say, and of course as related to God, as made by and loved by God. And that sense that what I look at and who I look at always belongs in an environment that's not just about me. Mm. That's, that's what I think the angelic seeing is about, because it also allows us to see the, um, the importance of symbolic connection, as Evagoras says. The, the things we see open out onto relationships and meanings that we, we couldn't really have expected. And the surprise of metaphor, the surprise of poetry, that's part mm. of seeing as well. Now, I, I related that, rightly or wrongly in my mind, to some of the things that um, some philosophers say about ethics having more to do with seeing than with willing. You know, we, we tend to inherit a, a view of morality, which is about the will. This is what I choose. This is what's right to choose. This is, you know, this is the behavior that we award good marks to. And there's a sort of counter strand of moral philosophy, especially associated with the Platonic tradition, and given vivid expression, of course, in the novels and the writings of Iris Murdoch mm. in the 20th century, a counter tradition which says you can't even begin to get anywhere with ethics unless you learn to be silent and to look first, to let what is before you be what it is. Mm. Only then, when you've stopped thinking about how it's useful for me and how it relates to me. Only then can you actually act with generosity, with truthfulness, compassion, and so forth. And part of that is a matter of simply slowing down, becoming more self-aware, asking, in what particular ways am I trying to make this situation serve me? In what particular ways am I trying to make this person or this thing serve me? And can I just shut up for a moment and step back and say, but it lives quite independently of me. Mm. And I only relate to it ethically when I let it live. Yes. Otherwise, I, I kill it. I mm. consume it. I find it wonderful the way you relate that way of seeing to the contemplative life and to contemplative seeing. And I have a bit of a vested interest in this being a member of an institute which, according to its constitutions, is wholly ordered to contemplation. And you say about contemplative seeing the following. Contemplation might be understood as the discipline of opening the mind to the world as a complex within which the particular subject stands, but which is not to be mastered or exploited by the subject, as if that subject stood somewhere else, or worse, nowhere in particular, in the fictive world of ego and gratification. Now, that's a pretty dense phrase. There's Sorry. a mention here of, no, it's wonderful, of, of participation, if I understand mm. correctly, mm. even of communion between the seer and the seen. Mm. I'm not sure I quite understand what you're saying. So I want to try out on you a testimony of contemplative living uh, that's important to me. It's from a letter by a Carthusian monk called Jean-Baptiste Porillon, um, mm. written to his sister from his monastery of La Val Sainte in the Swiss Alps about looking out of his window. And he says this. 
I ascertained the riches contained in a single perspective, the outline of a mountain, say, with its pine trees in the golden glory of May, in the mists of October or whenever. We must become the mirror of this beauty and its echo. It always reveals something new, yet every time it says it all, I do wonder whether travel is worth the bother. <laughs> what harmony, what inexhaustible harmony unites the spirit to every being that with divine freedom follows the law imprinted on its nature. Is it fair to say that that's an account in the first person of what you talk about in your definition of contemplation? I think that's very fair and it's, it's said much more wonderfully with much more focus than I could say it. It's exactly that, I think. Um, mm -hmm. When we encounter another person, when we encounter a landscape, when we encounter a, any, any situation, there are resonances, there are harmonics, which we, we're not going to grasp, which we're not going to see as objects, but which are connecting us. And the more we allow that to happen without imposing our own pattern upon it, the more we are part of that interweaving, that harmonic under, underlay mm. to the world we're in. And the problem we face, I've suggested in um, a couple of the chapters in the book, is that our culture has for quite a long time encouraged, encouraged us to think, well, we don't really belong. Our minds are somehow snipped free of that embarrassing involvement with the world around, so that we have a what a teacher of mine used to call a kind of lighthouse beam mm -hmm. approach. We, we sort of survey a world which lies below us. We don't have the sense that we are part of the balance and the integration of it. Now, for certain purposes, we rightly step back and limit what we look at and what we think about, and that's perfectly all right. The problem is when you have a culture of intellectual and scientific life, which assumes that the only real way of knowing is that way of knowing. Mm. And that gives us such a, an impoverished and limited view of our being in the world, and such a dangerous view as well, because it, it, it's as if we were being told the most human thing about us is the thing that keeps us at arm's length from everything else. Yes. And that's not a good place for us to be. Mm. So Don Porion's words are wonderfully reflective, I think, of the sense that when I look at what's outside the window, I'm not a detached, unlocated, disembodied perspective. Mm. I am actually absorbing and returning, once again, life. Mm. And, and life. I love what he says about becoming its echo and its mirror, uh, exactly. to, to let it resonate within me. Yes. Mm. And I think when, when you think about the, the activities that human beings engage in, in terms of representing the world, and this is something which quite a lot of theologians and philosophers have thought about, when I represent the world, I don't try to make um, a convincing imitation of it. Mm. I try to let the world's shape and form and intelligibility come through me mm. and go back into what's there. I don't just reproduce. I 
I make present in another way. And that's the whole business of art and sacrament, isn't it? Yes. And uh, just one, one more thing on that, I suppose the early chapters of the book were, I suppose, quite, quite a bit influenced by the fact that I was trying to write um, a few odds and ends of papers and interventions for a couple of conferences on religion and science. What am amazed me really was how very frequently I was driven back to the, the analyses in the Christian East of knowing and seeing yes. as a way of understanding what good science is and isn't, what real knowing is and isn't. So that good science is not the reduction of everything to mechanical models. Real knowledge is not sort of quartering everything on the block and reducing it to um, simple propositions. Somewhere underneath it all, there is that, as you say, sharing, that participation, that reflecting the to and fro of the giving and the receiving of what's mm -hmm. there and what I'm absorbing and what I give and what is absorbed in turn. Yes. To pick up obliquely that um, interface between religion and science, between living in nature, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what you say about being natural, being natural mm. versus being unnatural. In, in common speech, to be natural is to be spontaneous. Uh, it's to be yourself, relax, uh, don't worry about other people's standards. And you're very insistent, and I'm glad you are, because it's very hopeful that a Christian perspective must be different. And you say, for anything to be natural is for it to be as God intends, to be in the state in and for which God created it. So we must distinguish then between what truly pertains to our nature and what is habitual, what we've acquired as baggage which involves, in a Christian perspective, the load of sin, but not only. And there's that tantalizing theme in the Fathers um, of the mysterious garments of skin that yeah. the Lord clothes Adam and Eve in uh, as they leave the Garden of Eden in the third chapter of Genesis. Um, and if, if there's one, I mean, no book can contain everything, um, but if, if there's one uh, voice I'd hoped to hear and, and, and regret that slightly not hearing, it's that of Panayotis Nellas, ah. um, whose exposition of that theme is just so wonderful. But how, how do we go about discerning what is truly natural and what is unnatural? Mm. It's quite a theme, isn't it? Because if you take seriously what the, um, the tradition says, then oddly enough, you do have to work at being natural because mm, you've exactly. wandered along, you've wandered it's, along it's, it's front. a great task isn't it it is you don't mm. just have to switch off a few things and, and mm. then you're just natural as as it is with all those annoying people who say oh just be yourself mm. as if <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> um, <would be. laughs> and you do need then some some sense of the natural as again being in apt or just or fitting relationship with what's around. And that means being natural involves recognizing interdependence, mm -hmm. that you're receiving your life, not just making it up. Mm -hmm. And ultimately for a Christian, I think that comes down to understanding that to, to, to be natural is to be a creature, that is to be gratefully aware that your very being 
comes from the hand and the heart of a generous God. And, and that word grateful is key, isn't it? That to, to be natural is to, to be able to say thank you. To be natural is to be able to say thank you. That's a, that's a very good way of putting it, I think. And at the very heart of the divine life, we believe, there is the giving of the Father and the receiving and responding of, of the Son mm. and the sharing of the Spirit. It's, it's not as though to reflect the divine life, we have to be somehow detached, independent, all-powerful or whatever. On the contrary, to reflect the divine life is to be immersed in that exchange of generosity and gratitude. So to ask, am I being natural, which is a, a doomed question at the best of times, really. <laughs> but to, to try and deal with, with such a, a notion is, I think, to, what should I say? It's to ask, am I putting my own independence, my own autonomy, my own self-contained life in a privileged position? Or am I happily accepting that I belong, that I have, yes, I have the gift of gratefully receiving, and yes, I have the freedom to give in turn and to nurture life as well as to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. Is that the world I, I inhabit, or is it or is it that rather bleaker world in which the main priority is keeping my myself safe? Mm. So that's that's the elusive thing, and that's the thing, of course, we don't ever solve by thinking about it. Exactly. We resolve it by doing, which is why, coming back to Evagrius and his tradition once again, there's a, a real interweaving of the five-finger exercises of life in common, just learning how to spot and avoid the most habitual kind of elephant traps of selfishness and self-concern, mm. how to practice and, uh, and get used to exactly that looking that Domporion's letter uh, referred to, which you quoted earlier, and just to be practically in the habit of various things that will ultimately, if we live them through, make us natural in that sense, make us capable of receiving, capable of giving, yeah. and above all, not afraid of or ashamed of belonging in our world and with one another. Mm. And that's the point at which all these rather abstruse reflections, of course, spill over into how our, our human life together works, both in, Absolutely. in church and society. Mm. But you go further than that in saying that for some people to live naturally in this way is to opt for a kind of madness. Um, <laughs> And your chapters on, on folly for Christ's mm. sake and folly in Christ um, are of extraordinary interest. Obviously, that, that theme of madness is an important New Testament theme um, in, in, in St. Paul. Uh, it's not at all marginal. Mm. Um, Lisa Kremaski of Bose in, in, a, in a recent book on divine folly um, in a powerful introduction uh, emphasizes that it is a possibility within each of us and you go as far as saying that it's almost intrinsic to Christian living. I love your observation that martyrdom, which is a key Christian category, martyrdom itself is, from certain points of view, a spectacularly non-rational outcome for a human life, which is certainly true. And you say that it is taken for granted in this tradition, which is the subject of your book, 
that there is some basic oddity about the nature of sanctity, that only such narratives and figures as that of the fools for Christ can capture. And you give tremendous examples from life and literature. Um, in Dostoevsky, you point to Father Ferrapont, uh, the associate of uh, the elder Zosima, uh, describing him as an intermittently disturbed and delusional personality, pointing tantalizingly towards the interface between grace and psychiatric illness. You speak about Vodolaskin's Lauras in that remarkable mm. novel. And I love the way you present Bulgakov's Master and Margarita as a kind of a transposition, even a subversion of this theme, which is also present in a way in, in, in your chapter about Maria Skopitsova. And reading this caused me to wonder, and I wanted to ask, is there a dearth of folly in contemporary Christianity? Are we imprisoned in self-imposed airless cells of intelligibility and respectability? I'd love to hear you say something about that, and perhaps specifically mm. to say something about folly and Christian leadership, even mm. about folly and episcopacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, I th the short answer is yes. I, I think there is prevalent in the church as in the world at the moment, a deeply risk-averse mentality mm. for reasons that are understandable in many ways, but which can very often tell us the main thing we have to be sure of is that we are being prudent and proportionate. And there's something about the extravagance of the gospel that just is not spoken by those, those habits of prudence mm. and proportion. How we, how we live it out, I don't know, because as soon as you turn it into a program, you've, you've wrecked yeah, it. It's ruined. Part of what I was um, thinking about in that chapter on holy folly in the book is the fact that right through the tradition, people have been aware that, of course, as soon as holy folly is recognized as holy folly, mm. it becomes one of those things that respectable people can undertake. It's, because it's, it's there in the textbook. It's, some, yeah. it's one, of the, one of the techniques. And, and you have to find somebody who's doing it differently. That's why, for me, a figure like Mother Maria Skaptova is, is so fascinating, because she is a very interesting example of a genuinely unselfconscious unconventionality. Mm. in her life and, and her work and people who knew her all uh, responded to that deep unconventionality she didn't think she was being a fool for Christ she thought of Christ mm. and did what she could for Christ and it looked silly yep. I, I always remember once actually when I was a curate talking to a, a Sunday school class about great figures of the 20th century and talking about the life and the death of Mother Maria, her death in the concentration camp when she, so we're told, volunteered to take the place of another woman under sentence of death. And I was you know, drumming in the fact this was a wonderful example of Christian holiness. And one of the young boys in the class looked at me thoughtfully and said, you know, I think that's really stupid. And I thought, well, full marks to him for honesty. <laughs> um, because 
that's what most of us under the surface probably do think. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any way of systematizing it for bishops or anybody else. But I guess we are so, we, we bishops, so conditioned to, to be safe pairs of hands mm -hmm. that it's very easy for us to lose sight of that, that element of reckless love that's demanded of us, that capacity not to be on our dignity, mm. that ability to step aside from the, the protections that status affords. I, I suppose I think here of somebody like Desmond Tutu, mm. um, and that, well, apart from any number of little incidents which I can recall from long friendship with him, but I think especially of the moment when he walked into the middle of a riot in apartheid South Africa, where someone was on the point of being lynched, being burned alive by a crowd, and just walked in and said, stop, mm -hmm. climbed on top of a truck and told people to stop. Um, very near martyrdom, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, certainly... yeah, and that's very powerful, that it's about renouncing that desire and the felt obligation to be somebody Mm. Uh, the point even of laying down your life and, and yes. you say i think it's with, with regard to laura's you say ultimately his holy folly is one way of discerning a secure identity an identity that can be possessed and defended and you say a bit later that the person who exhibits holy folly is the one who embraces or at least endures in spiritual freedom the identities that others create for them mm. And then yes. a question arises in my mind, uh, which, which is slightly tangential, but it concerns an author that I know is dear to both of us. And I've sometimes wondered whether Marilyn Robinson's Jack would have the makings potentially of a holy fool. I think he most emphatically would, yes. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who, who accepts his marginal, disreputable status. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who is able to say to the more conventionally pious characters what they could never say for themselves and mm -hmm. he's somebody who with a, a kind of deep instinctive humility doesn't expect to be it taken doesn't. seriously listened to obeyed or anything but just follows that profound instinct which again and again seems to lead him almost like a magnet towards compassion and patience and a kind of abiding in the situation with others. He's no, he's not a saint. He's not a, a flawless figure. He has, he's done deep damage to other people, mm. but he knows that. Mm. Rather like um, Loris in, in yes. the novel you're talking mm. about. But nonetheless, his his homing instinct for compassion, his homing instinct for being honest and exposed to the world as it is doesn't doesn't fade i think he's a very interesting example yes indeed of kind of holy folly and and, and someone who is immediately perceived by others as someone who obviously has a soul <laughs> yes it's a big theme isn't it in the, the fourth <laughs> yeah. of marilyn sequence jack um that the soul is is that which doesn't doesn't disappear with mm -hmm. failure or confusion or whatever it's it's that sense of what is 
simply given in a person when you recognize and, 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 and that, that, that that radiates yes yes you recognize that yeah. utter awareness of another person mm. and that's that's the recognition of the soul yeah on that theme of of light you speak in one of your chapters about Sophroni Sakharov uh, the biographer mm. of Saint Siloan and the founder of the monastery of Tolishant Knights in Essex and the and the painter and an art, artist of distinction and you say that he speaks in his teaching of the potential human beings have to be not only a created hypostasis, but a universal center. That is a place where the boundaryless action of God occurs. The eternal I am is now uttered in the creaturely I. And reading that, I looked up again and reread some pages of that great book of Sophronius Sakharov's. We shall see him as he is, mm -hmm. which is, at least in the in the initial chapter, a kind of autobiography. Yes. yes. When he talks about living in Paris around the time of the revolution, and he says, "The beauty of the world enthralled me," and at the same time, he has this conviction that all my travel was in vain, and he talks of a typical day, saying, "I'm reading." Sitting at the table, I take my head in my hands and suddenly I feel that I'm holding a skull, which I ponder, as it were, from the outside. There's only one solution in that situation, says he, and that is prayer to the still unknown, because he wasn't really a practicing Christian at that time. And what happens through that prayer to the still unknown is that and I quote, a ray of light gleamed through the hairline crack. And he has this overwhelming reality of God's being manifest as uncreated light and in that revelation of God as being. So it seems to me that that's, it, it's a narrative account of precisely what he's saying, mm. that eternal I am is now uttered in the creaturely I. Now, by definition, a created vessel just can't contain the uncreated. So what, what happens theologically and experientially when the eternal I am is uttered in the creaturely I? That's a huge question, isn't it? And of course, the language um, relates to what Coleridge says about mm -hmm. the nature of Im imagination, mm -hmm. which is repetition in time of the eternal I am. I think something like this is what's happening. There is a moment in our relation with the world around, whether as people engage in ordinary human encounters or perhaps engage in artistic creation or maybe even in scientific discovery, when there is simply a sense of not having to struggle to be on top of a situation where something wells up in the perceiving and speaking self, which is more than just the marking out of my territory. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that sense of not having to be on top of the situation, what we were talking about earlier, the harmonics, the resonance between what's there and what's within becomes much more much more tangible, much more vivid. And when I recognize a moment like that, when I don't have to struggle, I don't have to be anxious to be on top of this situation, 
that's a moment when implicitly I'm saying, I know I am in the hand of God. Mm. I know that I exist because God chooses that I exist. I don't have to justify that. I don't have to sustain that. I, as Julian of Norwich says, it's, it's the little microscopic item in the palm of a hand, mm. but it lasts and it ever shall because God loves it. And that awareness of not having to struggle to exist is where the, the eternal, causeless, loving action of God comes home to me and comes home in me somehow. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's and, why. And, 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 and we're also, and, that, and that's, a, that's a theme you develop wonderfully, where compassion for other thing, for other existing things mm -hmm. is born. And I, I love it when you say that, talking again of, of um, uh, Archimandrite Sophronis, um, life and experience and teaching, you say deification is hypostatization in its fullest possible sense, growth into a mode of life that is continuous with that of the world's relation with the Father. Mm -hmm. Very theological. But then you say the divinized subject is the undefended subject. The narrative of deification as outlined by Father Sofroni is the narrative of loosing protection. Mm. And that I think is glorious. Mm. That coming to that point in Christian growth and maturing, there's a susceptibility to the world's suffering. Um, Sofroni develops it in terms of the prayer of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. A visual image of that, obviously, I mean, the, the prayer of Gethsemane points towards Calvary, um, and the Christian is called to participate in the life and the dying of Christ. Um, the monk, and obviously Father Sfroni was a, a monk who wrote for monks, does that in a sublime way. And I'm brought to think of an extraordinary insight that I owe to Sister Benedict Ward. Um, commenting on an icon from the crypt of the monastery of Sheptanya of the crucified monks. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the monk who is, who is crucified by his passion, but that is not all. And she said, commenting on that image, here is an image of someone who no longer simply considers Christ crucified on the cross, but who looks out upon the world with the eyes of Christ on the cross. Yes. And yes. would it be true to say that that kind of courageous and deliberate, deliberate vulnerability in sympathy, in the strongest sense, in compassion, is a criterion, really, of maturity and responsibility for a Christian? Looking out on the world with the eyes of Christ on the cross, yes. And, of course, one of the implications of that is that the person who arrives at that kind of spiritual maturity, which most of us can only guess at, mm. may also be a person who who's very conscious of the struggle and the absence of God. I think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and her yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. inner suffering and darkness she endured because she was, as it was, so close to Christ on the cross that there was nowhere else to look. She had to look <laughs> out through his eyes but couldn't see his eyes looking at her. Yeah. so to speak and that's that's a 
yeah, I think one of the most powerful elements in that kind of Christian sanctity. But mm. just one other thought on that, of course, Mother Maria reflecting on this um, takes us a little bit further by saying it's not just about accepting the cross. When you're actually part of the body of Christ, the solidarity and the relatedness and compassion that that is around is so in, instinctive, so in, intrinsic to you. It's like a maternal love. Yeah, yeah and that's wonderful. Which you, you know, you can't, as she says, you can't just deny that. It's not something you choose. It's just there. Mm. It's, it's, it's built in. Mm. And about synthesizing her teaching that confronted with the suffering of any specific other, we had no alibi in that particular moment. We're accountable for the other in the sense that it is for us to seek that course of action that will open up for the sufferer whatever possibility there is of growth towards Christ-likeness, which yeah. doesn't mean necessarily making the suffering go away, because that might not be possible, but of making sense of it and of carrying it with them. And I, th I thank right. you for saying that. Accompaniment and making the sense that can be made, which is not always sadly the same as being able to take it away, but to say to the sufferer, you're not alone, to say to the sufferer, this is something that you and I together can work with, work at, mm. and, as well as endure. I think that's part of what she's, she's saying there. And it's, uh, it's, it is tremendous. It's it mm. tremendous in every sense. Uh, it is, mm. yes. It's frightening. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.